Hello and welcome to Armchair Detectives Wanted. This is our Missing Person Week. Episode 12. A Broken Porch Light. This is a case from the USA. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Before we start, I will just issue a warning. This podcast may include content that some could find upsetting. It may also contain offensive language. As with all these cases, they are real life events. So please be aware that the crimes have had an impact on the family and friends of the victim. This case relates to the disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, her daughter, Suzanne Streeter, and Suzanne's friend, Stacey McCall. All three vanished together from Springfield in the USA on the 7th of June, 1992, without a trace. At the time of her disappearance, Cheryl Elizabeth Levitt was 47 years of age. She had light blonde hair, brown eyes and pierced ears. She was 5 foot tall and weighed approximately 110 pounds. She was a single mother and friends said she was very close to her daughter, Suzanne. Cheryl was employed at a local salon as a cosmetologist. For those who don't know, it's a beautician. Cheryl had originally married Brent Streeter in 1964. They had a son, Bart. A year later, Suzanne was born in 1973. Not long after Suzanne was born, they divorced. In 1980, she married her second husband, Don Levitt. They moved to Springfield around this time, but within six years, they had also divorced. Suzanne Streeter, the daughter of Cheryl was 19 years old at the time she vanished. She was five foot two inches tall with shoulder length blonde hair and brown eyes like her mother. Suzanne had a scar on her upper right forearm and a mole on the left corner of her mouth. She had pierced ears with the left ear having a double piercing. Stacy McCall, the friend of Suzanne was 18 years old when she disappeared. She was five foot three inches tall and weighed about 120 pounds. She had light colored eyes with long, dark blonde hair. Both Suzanne and Stacy met at school and graduated from Kickapoo High School on the June the 6th, 1992. During that evening, both of them attended a number of parties together. They were celebrating along with other students on the completion of their studies. Suzanne and Stacey had planned to spend the night at Janelle Kirby's house, a mutual friend. Janelle was also celebrating her high school graduation. However, when they arrived at Janelle's, it was crowded, so they decided to return to Suzanne's home. She lived there with her mother Cheryl. This was 1717 East Del Mar Street, Springfield. It is assumed both Suzanne and Stacey arrived home that night as their clothing, jewellery and purses were all present in the house the following day, the 7th. It is also known Suzanne's mother Cheryl last had contact with a friend on the phone at 11.15pm that evening, the 6th of June. The following morning on the 7th of June around 9am, Janelle Kirby and her boyfriend attended Suzanne's home address. It had previously been agreed that Janelle, Suzanne and Stacy would all go to the water park on the morning of the 7th. When Suzanne and Stacy failed to attend at Janelle's that morning, 
she decided to check up on them at Suzanne's home address. When Janelle arrived at the home, she found the front door unlocked and so she entered the house. However, neither Suzanne, Stacy, or Suzanne's mother Cheryl were there. Janelle searched the house, but she did not find any trace of the three women. The three vehicles belonging to the family were all still parked outside, and their beloved Yorkshire Terrier called Cinnamon had also been left behind. This was very out of character, as Suzanne and Cheryl both doted on the dog, and due to the fact that Suzanne and Stacy had failed to attend their pre-planned meeting, and the fact that the house was empty, Janelle reported all three missing to the police. On police arrival, Janelle pointed out that although the bulb was still intact, the shade over the porch light had been smashed. Unfortunately, Janelle's boyfriend had cleaned up the broken glass, which may have hindered the police recovering evidence from the scene. The search also found that Cheryl's bed had been slept in that night, which seemed to suggest that she had been in the home. What is strange is the fact that Janelle received two phone calls of a sexual nature while searching the home of Suzanne and Cheryl. On both occasions, Janelle put the phone down and the male who made this call remains unidentified. A few hours later, Stacey's mother Janice attended Suzanne's home and she had not been able to contact her daughter. Once inside the home, she noticed that all three of the women's purses were on the floor of the living room. She also observed her daughter's clothing, which she had been wearing the evening before, neatly folded. In a panic, Janice also called the police. Whilst in the home, Janice listened to a message on the answer phone. Although it was a little strange and the contents of this message are unknown, this was inadvertently deleted from the answering machine. Alongside Janelle and Stacey's mother Janice, a number of concerned family and friends attended the home. Although they had good intentions and were worried about the three missing women, their attendance ultimately compromised the ability for police to recover any forensic evidence from the scene, as ultimately the home had now been contaminated. There did not appear any obvious signs of a struggle, and it was only the shattered porch light that hinted there may have been some disturbance that night. On the 31st of December, 1992, Six months after the women went missing, a male called America's Most Wanted hotline. He stated he had information about the girl's disappearance. When the call was passed through to the Springfield Police Department, the caller hung up. He failed to make any further contact. Police believed the caller had knowledge of the abductions and appealed to him to speak with them. He never did. Five years after their disappearance in 1997, both Levitt and Streeter were officially declared legally dead. This was despite no evidence linking a suspect to their disappearance and without the recovery of their bodies. As the years passed, the police were no further forward with their investigation into the three missing women. A line of inquiry was given to police by a witness stating the bodies were in the foundations of the South Parking Garage at Cox Hospital. In 2007, a reporter asked a mechanical engineer to survey the area. The engineer had a machine that had ground penetrating radar. The survey revealed three anomalies, roughly the size consistent with a gravesite. Two of the disturbances were parallel with each other, while the third was perpendicular. The police department though did not excavate, believing there wasn't any tangible evidence to pursue the matter. 
The witness who had given the account failed to provide any evidence as to why the bodies would be located at the hospital. The prosecutor's office later stated the witness claimed to be a psychic or claimed to have a dream or vision about the case. This was not sufficient for the police to pursue. As the investigation progressed, two potential suspects were identified. The first was Dustin Reckler. He was a former boyfriend of Suzanne. He had recently been arrested and charged with the theft of gold fillings from a skull at a local mausoleum. Suzanne had provided police with a statement about the theft and was expected to attend court and give evidence against him. The theft happened just a few months before the three vanished. This would have given Dustin the motive for ensuring Suzanne would not be available to give evidence against him. The police though could not establish any link between Dustin and the girls vanishing. Another suspect was Robert Craig Cox who made himself a suspect to police. He was in prison in Texas at the time, convicted of kidnap and robbery. He had also previously been charged and convicted of murder in Florida. The circumstances of that case were that of a young female Disney worker in Florida who was abducted, murdered and her body dumped in a sewage station by Robert. Robert was convicted and sentenced to death in 1988 for this offence. However, he appealed his conviction, which was then quashed on the grounds of insufficient evidence a year later in 1989. In relation to the case of the three missing women, Robert stated that he knew the three women had been murdered. He said they had been buried and would never be found. Robert had in fact been a resident of Springfield in 1992. This is a place and year where the three women vanished from. When interviewed by police about the three missing women, he told them he was with his girlfriend at church on the day and time that the women disappeared. His girlfriend confirmed this. However, she would later say that her account was not true. She had in fact been told by Robert to say this in order to provide him with a confirmed alibi. As his girlfriend later withdrew her alibi, Robert changed his account stating he was in fact with his parents at the time the women disappeared. If this is the case, then why did Robert originally lie to the police? His parents confirmed his account, yet again eliminating him from the disappearances. He went on to say that he would disclose what happened to the three once his own mother had died. Law enforcement were unsure if he was fabricating this statement for self-recognition or if he was actually involved in the disappearance of the three women. The investigation, though, did not highlight any evidence that would link Robert to the crime, and to this day, no one knows what happened to the three missing women. No one has been formally charged or implicated in their disappearance, and their bodies have never been found. Armchair Detectives Wanted Team, this is what we know. Cheryl, Suzanne and Stacey vanished from 1717 East Elmar Street, Springfield. They disappeared between 2am and 9am on the 7th of June 1992. Suzanne and Stacey were last seen at about 2am on their way home from partying. Cheryl was last spoken to at 11.15pm on the 6th of June by a friend. Their porch light shade had been smashed. The girl's personal possessions were present at the address. Stacey's clothes from the previous night were still folded neatly. Cheryl's bed appeared to have been slept in. Their vehicles were present on the drive. 
At approximately 9am that morning, their friend Janelle arrived to check on the girls, as they had failed to attend her home as previously agreed. They were all going to the water park. Janelle found the front door unlocked. The smashed glass from the shade was cleared away by Janelle's boyfriend. There wasn't any sign of a struggle at the address. While at the property, Janelle answered two phone calls, each of which was a male making sexual comments. A message had also been left on the answer machine by a male, which appeared strange. On the 31st of December, a male called a TV programme saying he had information about the girl's disappearance. And here's what we need to know. Are the missing women still alive or have they been murdered? How were three individuals abducted or how have they gone missing at the same time? Could they have known the person that may have abducted them? Why is there no evidence of forced entry or of a struggle? And why was the front door of the home left unlocked? And why was the porch light shade smashed? There's no evidence of a crime occurring at the house. How could this be? All their possessions are still present in the home, including purses. Why is this? Did the police forensically examine the house or the cars? Had Cheryl slept in her bed that night? How is it that the neighbours didn't witness anything? And what vehicle could have been used to help abduct the women? How many abductors were there? Were there more than one? And was somebody watching the house? Could it have been someone local to them? Who was the male that made two sexual phone calls to Cheryl's home address that were answered by Janelle on the day that they vanished? Who was the male that left a strange message on the answer machine? Could this have been the same person? Who contacted America's Most Wanted on the 31st of December 1992 stating they had information about the girl's disappearance? Is Dustin Reckler a potential suspect? Could Robert Cox also be a potential suspect? Cox gave two different alibis. Why was this? And why would Cox ask his girlfriend to lie about his whereabouts? Cox had a history of murder and kidnap, so had he struck again with the three missing women? Or was he just making claims for his own recognition? How is it possible there have been no further sightings or information of the three females that vanished altogether? Someone must know something. Someone must have seen something or have some further information about this case. Please visit our Facebook page, Armchair Detectives Wanted, where you will be able to discuss your theories and views with other members. And don't forget to go to www.armchairdetectiveswanted.com where you will find photos and further information about the case. It's now time for week 12 of our scenario. The fingerprints on the knife are confirmed to be that of the husband. Another set of fingerprints on the smash lamp and glass have now been identified to a male smith who lives on the same estate. A. Will you arrest the husband again? His fingerprints are on the knife. B. Will you arrest Smith, identified by fingerprints on the glass and lamp? C. Will you wait to see if further evidence becomes available before arresting anyone? D. Will you not arrest the husband as he has already been arrested previously? E. Will you not arrest Smith at this stage of the investigation? Thank you for listening to Armchair Detectives Wanted. You are one of the team. Remember, don't just listen, be involved. We really would appreciate you recommending our podcast to others. 
We look forward to you joining us next week for episode 13, A Taxi Full of Diamonds. <laughs>